sand Everything gonna be all right Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio. It's Friday, December 4th, 2015. This week is episode 393. My name is Radio Joe Hughes and here with me at Studio D in Central City, Pennsylvania is our engineer, John. You gotta have faith. And joining me back from Studio C in McKee's Rocks is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Hello, Joe. Hello, everybody. Good day, Cliff. We've got you. This week, we're going to interview Dr. Jordan Petya. He's up at the Yale University Petya Lab. I got the got the scoop on that. We'll talk about that as we get into the show. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. And thanks to our newest sponsor, Particles Plus. Particles Plus engineers and manufacturers feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Learn more at www.particlesplus.com. Count on us. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products services okay you can download the show now direct from our homepage iaqradio.com you can stream also from there and of course you can still get us off of itunes podcast section last but not least please visit the iaq training institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com all right let's turn it over to the z-man for today's iaq radio trivia question Win a cool prize by out-competing fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Either email it to czelotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. Brian Baker, Custom Back Limited of Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, for the first correct answer to last week's IAQ Radio Trivia question. The IAQ Radio Trivia question for Friday, December 4th, 2015, has been sponsored by Triska, the Restoration and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Check out their website at trsca.org. Now for this week's IQ Radio Trivia question. Name the person who first suggested and coined the term microbiome. Back to you, Joe. Okay, thanks, Cliff. I think Brian's on. Brian, if you get this week's, I've got a special prize for you. We've got Dr. Joe Spurgeon's book, and uh, we look 
look forward to sending you a copy out. Today's guest is Dr. Jordan Petya. Dr. Petya is an associate professor of environmental engineering at Yale University. He's also the director of Yale's environmental engineering undergraduate studies and the faculty advisor for Yale Engineers Without Borders. He's an associate editor for the journal Indoor Air, that's the ISIAC journal, and is the 2014-15 chair of the Indoor Aerosols and Aerosol Exposure Working Group for the American Association of Aerosol Research. Research in the Petya Lab integrates microbiology with engineering to address important contemporary environmental problems. We got some music? A little different this week. The next time you look in the mirror, think about this. In many ways, you're more microbe than human. There are 10 times more cells from microorganisms, bacteria, viruses, fungi, than human cells in and on our bodies. And our genes are outnumbered 100 to 1 by microbial genes. Scientists even have a name for all these microbial genes, the human microbiome. Okay, Dr. Petya, do we have you on the line? I'm here. Great. Great to have you. Thanks for joining us. We're going to talk a little bit about the indoor microbiome, not the human microbiome today. But I wanted to first start with a little bit about you. I noticed you went to school in Montana. Is is that where you grew up as well? That's right. I was was born and raised in Montana, and uh, I completed my undergraduate degree and a master's degree in environmental engineering or microbial process engineering at Montana State. Oh, microbial process engineering. That's interesting. I, I didn't see that. I noticed the environmental engineering. How did how did you get involved in environmental engineering and, and then I guess with that emphasis on microbial? Yeah, I was um, you know, I was a mechanical engineering student for a long time as an undergraduate at at uh, university. This was in the late eighties and uh you know, Star Wars was going on, not not to not the George Lucas Star Wars, the other one. And uh, we were building lots of interesting planes and fighters. Space was still a big thing. And I think uh, when I went into college, I wanted to build rockets and airplanes and missiles. And so I thought mechanical engineering would be the right uh, direction to go into. I, I think as I, as I uh, went through college and I figured out that maybe mechanical engineers weren't always building rockets, and a lot of them became plant engineers. <laughs> I sort of reassessed and thought about, what do I think is important? What do I love to do? And I'd love to be outside. And so I thought a switch to environmental engineering would make more sense. Um, it's, it's a bit ironic that I did make that switch, and I've, I work mostly in buildings now, but uh, I'm still very happy with the environmental engineering idea. Well, and you also do what I find interesting. It's not quite as applicable to what we do, but you do human exposure to bacterial and viral pathogens emitted during land application of, of sewage sludge. How big of a industry is the land application of sewage sludge? It's huge. Really? It's huge. It's, uh, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. So, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those topics we don't always like to think about, but when wastewater goes into a treatment plant, clean water goes out, but, you know, everything that was in that water had to go somewhere, and some of it is oxidized to carbon dioxide, but even when you do that, you grow more bacteria, the rest of it is settled out, and that whole stream is called sludge. In the United States, we make about 8 million dry tons of that a year, 
and it has to go somewhere. And uh, we don't put it in the ocean anymore, which is good. Now we put this mostly on agricultural land. And as you can imagine, the people who live downwind from some of these sludge application sites are not happy. And so we've spent maybe about seven or eight years doing projects on human exposure and trying to decide whether that was safe or not, whether that was a sustainable practice. Hmm. I have a question uh, to, to follow up with that. Uh, I think one of the more popular products, at least that I know about, is malorganite, you know, yeah. the one that comes from Milwaukee. Uh, are there other cities selling theirs as well? Uh, yeah, I think I think Milorganite is one of the more popular ones. They um, not, the rest of them aren't branded as well. The EPA divides sludge into two classes. One's called Class A, and one's Class B. If you're in the the Class B is is known to have pathogens, and so you have to have regulations, and in the land application of that is careful. The Class A, you can put that in a bag and and you can sell it at a at a you know anywhere. You don't have to even say what it is. So Milorganite has been successful in doing that. It's a high-quality Class A sludge. It shouldn't have any pathogens in it. Um, other cities have not been successful. For example, you know, the city of San Francisco um, announced that they were giving out free organic fertilizer and didn't disclose that it was composted sewage sludge until people found out, and, and that didn't go over well. Hmm. So... It's, um, you know, it's been successful in some cases for reuse, but in, in many cases, because um, it wasn't always officially disclosed exactly what it was or what its origin was, and people were putting this in their garden without that information, it's not been popular. How do they, how do they treat the malorganite to make it Class A? Because it would seem that some of that stuff would have, you know, they would have had some Class B in it at some point. Yeah, well, it all starts out as worse than Class B. It starts out as just plain old sewage sludge that uh, is full of pathogens. And th there's two processes typically to get to Class A. One is called thermophilic digestion, and then the other one is called composting. There's a few others as well, but those are the two main ones. So thermophilic digester is just to stick it in a big anaerobic digestion tank and let it sit there for 20, 30 days, um, on average, at a high temperature, say 55 to 58 degrees Celsius, that, that kills just about everything. The other one is, is composting, and so that's the compost and the heat in composting. Um, when you mix wood chips in it and you keep it aerobic, you can get to very high temperatures there as well, and that kills off all the uh, microorganisms. The odor in Class A um, biosolids is usually pretty low. Not always, but often it's quite low, and so... Um, you know, through composting or, or this digestion at high thermophilic temperatures, you can get a product that has very low pathogen content. Thanks. At, at your lab in, uh, at Yale, you you've, um, also do a lot about the microbiome of, of the built environment, and that's become a huge area over the last 5 to 10, maybe even 15 years. And, and I was wondering, how much more do we know today over the last, you know, 10 years compared to what we knew prior to, say, 2000? Yeah, I think that that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, the knee-jerk reaction is to say, of course, we know, we, know, we know much more today. And the reason is, is because in the last 5 to 10 years, we've applied new techniques to studying the microorganisms. And so um, 
using, you know, DNA sequencing went through, I don't know, what you might call a paradigm shift about eight to ten years ago. And the cost to sequence DNA became orders of magnitudes cheaper, uh, not, not five times cheaper or ten times cheaper, maybe a thousand, ten thousand, a hundred thousand times cheaper. Hmm. And that meant all of a sudden that uh, instead of needing to go through and culture and, uh, and look at microorganisms on the microscope and try and identify them that way, we could just sequence their DNA, sort that all out, and run it through some databases and get lists of microorganisms using that approach. The benefit of that approach is, is that we're not able to culture my, most microorganisms. And so, you know, by using culture, especially for bacteria, you're only looking at a small fraction of what's there. When you use this uh, DNA sequencing techniques, you can get much, much closer to the full picture of the huge diversity of microorganisms that are there. And, you know, in house dust, you may have uh, a thousand different types of bacteria and a thousand different types of fungi. So we have a much better idea of what those organisms are in the indoor environment. We have a better idea what their fate and transport is. Um, so that's new and that's exciting. Something that maybe, you know, that we had an idea about well before 2000 is some of these big conclusions. For instance, if we try to ask the question now, where do most of, what's the source of most of the microorganisms in a person's home? You know, we're going to come out and we're going to find that the source is, is people. It's the occupants. That's something that we knew a long time ago. If we ask the same question for fungi, if there's a home that doesn't have water damage in it, you know, we're going to come up with the same answer that fungi is from outdoor air or tracked in dust. So in some regards, some of the bigger conclusions we already know and we have always known, but we have these new tools, and, and the hope is that we can go under after some of these long-standing questions, maybe mold and moisture, um, microorganisms and human health, and we can advance the science that way. Are, are we able to, you know, you're, you're getting a lot of information when, when you do these this sampling and the analysis. You've got all this information. Are we getting a better handle on how to deal with all that information? Yes, we are getting a better handle, but it's still not easy. Uh, you know, uh, we started doing this next generation DNA sequencing uh, maybe seven or eight years ago in my lab. And, you know, you can do this. You can get the sample, you can extract the DNA, and you can send it to a sequencing lab if you have enough money, and they'll sequence it for you. And that's not a hard thing to do. The trick comes in putting it all back together and making sense out of that data. The, the, the data files are huge. Uh, there, are, there are often millions and millions of sequences, billions of bases of DNA, of data, in a sample or in a, in a particular study. Early on, five years ago and, and earlier than that, it was more challenging to sort out this data the pipelines for determining which sequence was belong to which microorganism was more difficult to uh, were more difficult to operate. They weren't optimized for these large data sets. Even computers um, couldn't handle some of the times the gigabytes and terabytes of data that needed to be analyzed. Um, so right now we're in a better situation. There's been a lot of effort, time, money spent in developing software to analyze these big data sets to do it efficiently. We don't need as much computational power as I think we used to. So it's getting better, but it's still not easy. 
mean, it's it's the major limitation, I think, into moving this into practice is the data analysis. And how we interpret the data. And how you interpret the data, for sure. And is there any effort to uh, use the data we already have collected for you know, 100 years or, or so, um, are there, are there efforts underway to try and um, compare that to what we're getting through these new processes and through through this new type of analysis? Um, I, I'm not. There there have been efforts uh, from the standpoint of if you uh, if you take a if you take an aerosol sample in a school classroom and if you try to use multiple techniques to determine what types of microorganisms are there say one is culturing technique, one is microscopy identification, and the third technique would be molecular methods, DNA sequencing. We, we know what that answer is going to be. We know that DNA sequencing is going to give you vastly much more information. Uh, there'll be some limitations with that. We won't be able to tell if they're alive or not, although there's some new approaches that can help us with that. We, we're not as good as quantifying them with DNA sequencing, but uh, we know that DNA sequencing will give you a list of hundreds to thousands of microorganisms, and you're not going to get that with culturing or uh, microscopy. So those comparisons, we understand what's going to, what's going to occur. So that, that old data will, will still be useful? We'll, we'll still be able to, I mean, it's not going to be rendered useless by these new techniques and the new, new uh, ways of evaluating indoor environments? <laughs> I would say I would say yes and no. Um, you know, if you're thinking about evaluating a build building for water damage, um, I, I I would imagine in the future that we are not going to look and do this by microscopy or culturing at all. We're going to do this by DNA sequencing, and uh, I think that that can be made more quantitative. There's just such a rich amount of information in DNA sequencing, and as the prices come down in the analysis gets better and better, I think that these are going to be the approaches moving on in the future. That doesn't mean that the research prior to this was wrong or that the data is not useful. It's absolutely useful, but I think we're just moving into a better approach to uh, characterizing microorganisms. What What's the most important lesson, I guess, we've learned so far with respect to the, all this new information we have over the last five to ten years. You, you mentioned that we were correct about indoor sources being the most common source for bacteria and outdoor for fungi, fungi. Um, yeah. What else have we learned? I'll tell you one that I think is important is that we're starting to think about merging these different microbiomes. So the human microbiome and the indoor microbiome are interrelated. And what's been very useful about getting all this data on the different microorganisms that a person might be exposed to is we're, we're no longer so absolutely focused on the bad ones, but we're starting to think about the good ones. And so we always have known about the microorganisms that make us sick. We know that Legionella is not good. We know that uh, influenza is not good. And we know that we can find these, and we know that we have detection methods for them. But, you know, a disease, for instance, let's take asthma. Um, you know, as the development of asthma has been a mystery for a while, and I think that mystery is rapidly being solved by these new techniques. 
And um, it's being solved not because there's we've never really understood if there's one microorganism that causes asthma. What we're learning now is that there's a diversity of microorganisms that probably protects us from asthma. And as we kind of go through the class um, of different microorganisms and we compare these to different health effects, prior we were always looking for the one that causes it. Now we're thinking about what are the ones that are protective. And when you look at the asthma situation, especially for development, we see the lists of organisms that are protective against asthma. And so we, I, I think we're going to learn a lot more about human health that way. Well, that's, that kind of is a good segue into discussion of a couple of the papers that you sent me. And, and, and the first one would be the next generation DNA sequencing reveals that low fungal diversity in house dust is associated with childhood asthma development. And I think yeah. when people first hear that, they kind of get, it's almost like counterintuitive, you know. Um, we we yeah. always think that, you know, uh, a big diversity in a water damaged event uh, is going to be the problem. Can you kind yeah. of walk listeners through what that title actually means? Sure. I mean, you know, the something that's really coming out of this work is that bacteria are good for us. Fungi are good for us. That's That's the general message we want to get out there because that's a message that has not been talked about a lot. It is absolutely not good to have a lot of water damage in your house. It is absolutely not good to have a lot of allergens in your house if you have allergies. But for the general public and for developing our immune systems, it's good to have different types of microorganisms. We, we've known about this before from a hygiene hypothesis, this, this general idea that you know, if I think about it in ways that people have expressed it to me is, you know, children need to play more in the dirt. We need to have more dirt. We need to have lives where we're exposed to a lot more different things, uh, microorganisms especially, so that our immune systems can develop properly. And, you know, that might be a bit of a, uh, not the, the most appropriate way to sum up the hygiene hypothesis, but we're certainly finding out that it's true that early microbial exposure, we're talking the first six months of life, has a huge impact on the health of a child specifically with allergies and asthma. And so what we found in this study, this was a really unique study. This was done in collaboration with a person named Mark Mandel at the uh, University of California, Berkeley. Uh, well, he was at the California Department of Public Health. And then there was a cohort of uh, children that were studied um, by the School of Public Health at University of California, Berkeley. This cohort was called the Chimacos cohort. And so when my graduate student who did this work, Cameron Dannemiller, was in junior high, <laughs> Chamaco's cohort started. They enrolled pregnant mothers in near Salinas, California. They um, then tracked the children that were born to these mothers. And the, most of the work was done for pesticide, but they had the foresight to look into the house. They measured moisture levels in the wall. They had moisture indicators um, in some of the building materials. They took dust at different points um, of the child's life, at six months, at one year, at five years. And then they went through all the way to age seven, where you have to be that old to get a proper asthma diagnosis. And so seven years down the line, eight years down the line, when people were diagnosed with asthma or not, we were able to take that data and say, well, here's the house. We know that asthma develops in the first six months, so we, but it has to be diagnosed at seven years. 
So we're able to take that data and say, here's the group with asthma, here's the group without asthma. Now let's go dig in their house dust for the first six months and see if we see any difference in the microbial communities. When we did this, you know, we thought, okay, the asthmatics are going to, something's going to pop out. There's going to be an aspergillus, you know, that's only in the asthmatic household and not in anything else. And when we looked at the thousands of comparisons of different species that we were able to detect, we saw no difference in the different houses, nothing. There was no difference in allergens. There was, there, there were, it was remarkable for how there was no difference between the asthmatic and non-asthmatic houses. There was only one parameter that stood out, and that parameter was diversity, which is the number of different type of fungi. And it turns out, um, based on the odds ratios, if you lived in a house where there was more diversity in the fungi in your house dust, you were five times less likely to develop asthma than if you lived in a house that had low fungal diversity. Hmm. That's a, that, that seems like a crazy um, <laughs> outcome, but uh, others have seen this as well. So studies in Europe that didn't use as intensive microbial methods that we used but had a larger cohort found exactly the same thing. Bacterial and fungal diversity, the higher it was, the more protective it was in children developing asthma. So that's, a, that's something that's been seen now multiple times, this importance of microbial diversity. The only way you can get to those types of data is by sequencing and, and uh, counting up the different microorganisms you find. And Cliff, I know you had a follow-up. I, I do, doctor. Something I read this morning in trying to get prepared for the interview was this, uh, the difference in asthma with children born uh, by cesarean versus children born by natural childbirth. Any, any comment on that? Yeah, um, I, know, I know a little bit. I know, I know this data a little bit. Uh, um, yeah, well, here's my comment on that. I don't want to comment specifically on those studies because um, I, I can't uh, pull out the details directly from my memory, but I can say just in general, you know, where this diversity work is going uh, is that there's something about microbial community exposure early on in life that's important with asthma and allergy development. And a child needs to be exposed to the right microorganisms as soon as they're born. In fact, there's evidence they need to be exposed to the right microorganisms before they're born, or that is their mother needs to be exposed to those organisms. And so, you know, there's a lot of data that shows this. There's data that shows that uh, children um, who are born to mothers who were around a dog or a cat have significantly lower IgE levels in their colored blood, and it also shows that children who were born to those mothers in, who are around a cat or a dog have much lower as, uh, rates of allergies. Children who grow up on farms that have livestock have much lower rates of asthma. Um, children who um, are born by C-section have, I, I think, um, have lower rates of allergies. They have all kinds of different um, developmental measures in this, but they, I think they have lower rates of allergies than children that are born by the traditional birth control route. Um, what's interesting about that is, is there's a bacteria, lactobacillus, this is a genus of bacteria, that shows up in all of these. It shows up, um, it lives on dogs, it's a bacteria that is um, very common in the female vagina. It's a bacteria that's common in milk. 
And so it seems like early exposure to lactobacillus is quite important for a child's immune system de- development. And and the more the better, it seems. I don't or is that? I don't know if it's the more the better, or uh, you know, the dose response. I think isn't so well worked out. But it seems like the earlier the better is what what the deal is. They've done these experiments in mice where they've taken dust from a house where you have a dog, and dust from a house where you don't have a dog. And uh, they fed it to these mice. They force-fed it to these poor mice. <laughs> and these mice had allergies, for um, one for, for cockroaches and the other one for eggs, I think. And they found out that when they, fed, when they uh, challenged the mice with these pure allergens, there was a strong allergic reaction in the mice who were fed the dust that didn't have dogs, that, that didn't come from a house with dogs. But when the mice were fed dust that came from a house with dogs, they had a much, much lower response to these allergens. Hmm. And they hypothesize it's because it's lactobacillus that has taken hold in their intestinal tract, and that's giving signals to their immune system to help mediate these allergic responses. Now, before we go to our halftime break, I want to, you know, we, we, we said something here that I think needs expanded on a little bit, and that is that... Um, Decreased diversity, you know, is associated with childhood asthma development. I guess when we have a water-damaged building, we also know that's associated with asthma development. Those two things don't seem to match. What's the... They don't. (laughs) That's a good observation. We we have no idea what's going on there. Um, You know, in the same study that we've done this work, we find that actually... In a water-damaged building, you often see an increase in diversity of fungi. But, so, so it doesn't match at all. It's opposite of what you might think. We, we have no idea what's, what's going on. The, the, the data for water-damaged buildings and diversity is, is a small data set. I'll say that. But in the few studies that have been completed, it seems like there's this trend where it increases the diversity. Um, you know, the, the one possibility could be is that, again, this diversity is a, is a proxy for something else. And some researchers think that it's a proxy for things like lactobacillus bacteria and also some different forms of aspergillus uh, fungi. And so that may, in some part, explain it because we know in water damage building, aspergillus does well in, those, uh, in, in wet building materials. Otherwise, we, we, we simply don't know. We're trying to work this out. Coming up with a model or a conceptual idea about how fungal diversity in house dust is increased is by moisture or building characteristics turns out to be a pretty difficult task. Um, when we've taken, we've taken house dust and we've grown, we've just exposed it to different relative humidity levels, and um, one thing that we find is it depends on how you measure the diversity and whether you find out that uh, you know, fungi or d- dust at 95% is more diverse than dust at 60%. Certainly, things grow when you get up to 95%. But what happens is not everything grows. You know, there may be 2,000 different type of fungi uh, in house dust. And then when you expose it to 95% relative humidity, maybe... 10, 15, 20 different species really take hold and grow. And when you measure that, that actually shows up as a, as a lowering diver, of diversity because it becomes dominated by just a few species. 
But the techniques we have are so sensitive, we can sequence thousands and thousands of, of, uh, of microorganisms. And so we can go so deeply into that community that we don't only get the more common ones, we get the really uncommon ones, the rare ones. And so it shows up as a high diversity. So, you know, we're, we're not sure. We're not sure if it's a technology problem, if it's something we just don't understand. But, um, you know, something about this type of research that really excites me when you, you just run up to something that you absolutely don't understand and run counter to your intuition. Uh, I think, um, you know, that's the area that some of the fundamental research we do is, can really be helpful in. Well, and, and maybe we were, just, we were just wrong that dampness leads to more diversity in the first place. Maybe that's not always the case. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, we, we know that dampness leads to asthma, but, you know, there's no, the, that, that epidemiology is solid, but the biological plausibility of that is not solid. So we, we, we assume that dampness leads to fungi and maybe bacterial growth, and that's what leads to the asthma. But that connection between asthma and microorganisms is, is not strong. So we don't know what feature of the microbial community it is. We don't even know if it's organisms or it's, uh, you know, the, the volatile products that come off of these organisms. I've got a bunch of text questions. I promise, listeners, I'll get to them after halftime. But we've got to stop and thank our sponsors and pay some bills. We'll be back in about 90 seconds with Dr. Jordan Petya. And thanks to our newest sponsor, Particles Plus. Particles Plus engineers and manufacturers feature-rich particle counters, air quality monitoring instrumentation, and vacuum pump technology. Learn more at www.particlesplus.com. Count on us. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. We use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Check them out at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, or restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products services. All right, we're back with the second half of our interview with Dr. Jordan Petchier. He's calling from Yale University, and um, I've got a whole bunch of text questions here. Let's go back to, uh, can you tell us something about the work your lab has done that shows increasing production of toxins by fungi when growing in cool, damp environments? Um, I, I don't, oh, I, I mean... 
Yeah, I think I can. I think if if the the question is referring to some of our work, well, we've taken a, a pure culture, Aspergillus fumigatus, and we tried to grow it at different temperatures. And when we grew it at different temperatures, we then got some, you know, you can buy these things. We got some serum, some blood serum, from a collection of people who are known to be allergic to Aspergillus fumigatus. And because we had that blood serum, we had the IgE in it that was specific for Aspergillus fumigatus, and we tested to see how it bound to the stuff that we grew at the different temperatures. The more it binds, the more... um, allergic that fungus is. And what we found is that by growing this fungus at different temperatures, it is much more potent. It's a much more potent allergy at low temperatures than it is at high temperatures. Okay. So that's the allergen aspect. Yeah. And then their follow-up was he was wondering, he or she, about whether you think there may be implications for the maintenance of cooling coils in HVAC systems. Yes, I do. Um, we have just started a project um, that's been funded by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation to dig into cooling coils on the East Coast and some locations on the West Coast to try and see what type of microorganisms are living there. We certainly know that um, uh, fungi can grow in these cooling coils, and we know that they're growing in these cool, sometimes damp, sometimes dry uh, climates, and uh, I'd be very interested to try and find some of those organisms and try and determine if they're more allergic than, you know, say the fungi that you find growing in a building material that's damp but not so cold. Hmm. And I think there's one, yeah, and one more on the the house, the dust that was analyzed. Was that all? Did you also do like endotoxin or or any any other type of analysis? When we do, um, yeah, so. If it's the project with the fungal dust in California, or we've more recently done an epi study in Connecticut, um, yeah, we we do a whole suite of of, of of measurements. And so there's endotoxin, beta glucans are often measured. Different types of um, allergens are measured, whether it's house, you know, mouse, cockroach, dust mite, etc. Yeah, the studies tend to be pretty heavily controlled, and uh, a lot of the confounding factors, socioeconomic status whether the parents smoked, weather, et cetera, is included in these. So those other we, measurements were done to to make sure you had the controls in place? Yeah, or, or? so whether, you know, that we our measurement that we were, the, the fact that we're measuring was truly due to, you know, what our hypothesis was, and it wasn't confounded by some other parameter. Got it. Okay, one other thing on the next-gen sequencing revealing low fungal diversity in house dust is associated with childhood asthma development. The thing that stood out to me was a a sentence in here that said, um, cryptococcus was significantly associated with increased asthma risk. And and I read a little more on it, but I I wonder if you could comment on that for our listeners. Yeah, mostly that was put in there because that's a that's that's one of those observations that um, you make, and you want to um, you don't know why <laughs> why that is, um, but you see it, and in this case, the odds ratios were strong, and so we just believe that we should at least mention it. Um, Cryptococcus is 
you know, most people might know Cryptococcus from neoformins and some of the other pathogenic fungi in, in that genus. But it turns out the Cryptococcus genus is huge, and there are lots of different members in it. In fact, um, be, you know, something that comes out of our sequencing, and it gets, you know, it gets, this gets a little geeky into the, you know, fungal ecology, but there are, there are mostly two types of, of fungi that we see in the indoor environment, mostly. They're the Ascomycota and the Basidiomycota. The Ascomycota are really t- relatively easy to grow. The Basidiomycota are difficult to grow. And all of the previous research that has been done up to this has usually neglected the Basidiomycota, even though it's often more than half the different fungal populations or communities uh, because you can't grow it. Uh, our sequencing can get both of them, and it's non-biased for one or the other. Cryptococcus is the Basidiomycota, and, and what we find is when we go through a lot of different homes, we find tons of this stuff. It's it's not the pathogenic type, but it's it's really common, and it's around uh, in house dust just about everywhere we look. And my best guess is that um, the genus of Cryptococcus is so big that uh, it contributes a lot to the total fungal load. And so we're just seeing sort of a reflection in our data from Cryptococcus because it's a good percentage of the total fungi in these cases. And let me make sure for listeners that I get that sentence correct because I left out part of it. Decreased diversity within the genus Cryptococcus was significantly associated with increased asthma risk. So similar, um, maybe it's just because that's such a big part of the you know, the fungal ecology in general, and it seems to follow the same pattern as the other. Um, that's, okay. That's, that's, that's our best guess. There's, you know, there's some other observations about um, asthma development in pigeons and um, things like cryptococcus infections that go undiagnosed, and people think that if you have more of these infections, you may be protected against fungi as well. And so, I mean, you know, you can maybe piece together something there, but... You know, we don't have strong evidence about what's going on with Cryptococcus or if it's really important or not. Okay. Cliff, before I move to the next study, do, do you have anything you wanted to ask? No, I'm good, Joe. All right. Let's 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 go over to, um, let's see, I've got several and we're running a little low on time. I want to get to the um, indoor emissions as a primary source of airborne allergenic fungal particles in classrooms. And I wonder if you could just kind of comment on this. I think, if I'm not mistaken, this is the one that had something about the mechanical system in here, but I'm going to have to take a look. I'm starting to mix them together. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that one? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, this is the work that we, this is the work we really, I, I think we like doing all our work, and I think the health work is always the ones that a lot of people cotton on to, but this is the work that, as an engineer, I really like doing. So this is a collaboration with Bill Nazaroff at, at University of California, Berkeley. And what we tried to do in this type of study was a lot of the work of DNA sequencing has is, is been to just catalog what's in the house or what's in a building. And, you know, for microbial ecologists, that's a great thing to do, and they do that very well. You know, um, for us, we wanted to know things more quantitatively because we want to get an idea on exposure and we want to think about in the future, how do we design a building so that you can encourage the right exposures and discourage the wrong exposures, microbial exposures. And so what we did in this study was this was, a, this was schools 
It was schools in the United States, schools in Europe. Uh, there was one in one or two in Denmark, one in Germany, and then there were two schools in China that we included in the study. And um, we looked at you know the microbial communities in the air, indoor and outdoor. We looked at when the classrooms were occupied and not occupied. And we got the different microorganisms for the different, we, we, we sampled in a size-resolved way. So we knew what the aerodynamic diameters of these different microorganisms and microbial communities were as well. When you kind of put all that together and you know something about the ventilation rate in these buildings, you know, the size of these buildings, you know, occupancy levels, you track activity of the students, you can start to um, do some calculations on, you know, for specific for just say for total bacteria and total fungi, what's really the source of these microorganisms in air? And what we found is that for bacteria, the bacteria that a, a student would inhale in a classroom, about 98% of it comes from the floor. That's what your real exposure is. And so, you know, next time you drop something on the floor and you pick it up and you think whether you should eat it or not, I say just eat it because you're <laughs> inhaling that stuff all day long anyway. Um, Fungi is a little different. Fungi is the majority still of fungi still come from the floor. They don't come from outdoor air. They come from resuspension in the floor that you inhale. But it's a little bit less. In this case, we were able to not just look at it for bacteria and fungi, but we were able to separate that out for you know hundreds of different species of fungi, and we included the allergenic species and the non-allergenic species. And what we found was your biggest exposure to allergens in the air comes not from allergens that are being swept in through the ventilation system. Uh, they're coming from allergens that are being resuspended from floors. And, uh, you know, the, 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 the take-home message in something like this is, is if you have a child who has um, got asthma or, you know, has uh, fungal allergen problems, and you're thinking about do you need to ventilate more or do you need to clean more, it's, the cleaning of surfaces is, is of paramount importance. And... In this study and another study, if you have to put numbers on it, you know, a person, by just being in a room, walking around, sitting down, normal classroom activities, on average, emits about 10 million fungi per, per hour. Uh, same, about the same number for bacteria as well. The largest source of fungi going into air is usually resuspension from people. Hmm. And that's not what we've thought for years. It's not what we thought, no. And because we can put rates on this and because we know the sizes of these organisms, we can think about if you want to put a filter on your HVAC and you have a different nerve rating, you can get an idea about what's going to be reduced and what's not going to be reduced. We know about how they deposit now onto the floor. We know about how they inhale and get into the different parts of your lungs, again, because we know the sizes of these microorganisms. And the hope is, and the thing that we've been doing right now, I don't know if we're going to get it published or not, but, you know, it's an idea we're trying to push is we should be able to think about a lot of different environments and, and from some ordinary principles and from some, from some simple models, we should be able to model what a person's exposure is going to be to fungal allergens. And then you can switch this up. You can put a carpet in versus a hard floor and you can see... Um, you know, what's the difference is carpet versus hard floor. You can clean the floor. You cannot clean the floor. You can put in different numbers for the microbial loading on the floor, and you get an idea of how important that is. 
you can put um, you turn your HVAC system up and, and increase air exchange rate or not, and you get an idea for how effective that is for reducing fungal allergen exposure as well. So hmm. that's the vision, and that's where we're trying to go with practice with this type of uh, data. Interesting. Cliff, do you have any ad you want to add, or should I go to the next one? Oh, go ahead, Jeff. Okay, let's go to the next one here, and that's the... Um, Let's do the influence of housing characteristics on bacterial and fungal communities in the homes of asthmatic children. What's the what's the takeaway from this one? I think the takeaway was is um, was that you know we've we've done two studies now. One um, on the importance of diversity in asthma development, and then we're just publishing a study right now. Is what if you already have asthma, and we've divided it into two types of asthma atopic or allergic asthma, and non-atopic asthma. What are the types of bacteria, fungi, or microbial community features that really contribute to severity in those cases? And so, you know, we're building up databases of what might be important for human health, um, for, for beneficial human health for microorganisms. We think diversity is important. Maybe lactobacillus are important, et cetera. And so we wanted to go in and look at, in this case, 200 homes, and you just do some statistical correlations. We sampled the house dust in these homes, and we tried to see what was associated with more diversity, what's associated with this type of more organism or that type of organism. And I think the big take-home point there was, you know, there's the, 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 you know what the strong impact of, you know what the real mediator of microbial communities in a person's house is? It's having a pet. If you have a pet, you know, that changes the microbial ecology in your house almost more so than anything else does. It changes it more than running your air conditioning system. It's more important than how well your house is ventilated. It seems to be more important than having, you know, two kids versus five kids. That's just the one that just really, you know, has a huge impact on the microbial ecology in a building. There was another statement in here that, Again, goes back to the mechanicals to some degree. Water leaks in pets, following up on what you're saying, were associated yeah. with increased fungal diversity, while longer AC use was associated with a decrease in fungal diversity. That's right. The what? AC data and the water leak data was not as strong, but it was certainly statistically relevant. Um, that, again, follows along with what we've seen before, you know, more diversity seems to come at homes where they repeat or they report more water um, damage. And so what you have to understand about this study is this came from an epidemiology study where they went into the house, they did a bunch of tests on the child, like spirometry tests, and looked at their asthma severity. And then they had this very long and thorough questionnaire about conditions in the house. One of the conditions was if you have water damage in your house, where's the water damage? And so that was the data that we went from. I think any practitioner that works with buildings and water damage would not recognize that as a very thorough way of categorizing water damage in a home. And so that's another reason we think that we may be a little bit off with the water damage diversity relationship. You know, are there any, you're doing all these studies and I'm wondering if there's anything that kind of stands out i don't know how familiar you are with current practices for doing for instance water damage restoration or mold remediation 
yeah. what what if these studies showed that that might help us with respect to doing a better job when we're dealing with those issues? I think um, you know this is this is uh, this is the the topic of a recent proposal by me and Richard Shaughnessy at, at Tulsa University. And this is something that we continue to try. We're going to continue to try and get funded and continue to try and pers- push our research into this area. We see, um, you know, these inconsistencies between human health and moisture and microbial ecology as, as, a, as an important area of research um, and an important area of application of this type of research. What we want to do right now is... Because we can, you know, take a sample and we can quantify and identify all the fungi and bacteria in that sample, we think that we ought to be able to build frameworks for looking at homes that are water damaged and materials that are water damaged versus homes that are not water damaged. And finally get to the ability where we can go in and we can take a microbial sample and we can say, yep, this is a water damaged home. It has the telltale microorganisms of a poor health outcome. Uh, and that you know, even though you don't know what's going on behind that wall, I can tell you from sampling in your main living area, you have microorganisms here that are, you know, 98% associated with water damage. That's where we're trying to get to, um, and that's going to take new ways of sampling and thinking about how we sample close to and far afield from the water damage, and also it's going to take a lot of uh, tricks for the data analysis. Um, one thing that we're trying to implement is, is source tracking technology. And so, you know, I think about this in an in a interesting study done at the University of Colorado. They went through and they sampled the surfaces of public to- restrooms. And uh, they, they sampled toilet seats. They sampled walls. They sampled floors, all kinds of disgusting areas. And then they sequenced the bacteria there, and they got an idea who was there. And they used databases that they had. So, you know, this same group has also sampled thousands of of feces from people in this project called the Human Gut Microbiome Project. So they know exactly what's in feces. They've sampled um, and taken samples of human urine. They know what kind of microorganisms are in human urine. They know what's in water typically. They know what grows in soil. And so they can use this as a training set to build a, a source tracker. And what you end up from this is, you know, take a sample from a toilet seat and you might see a bar chart that goes up to 100%. You know, and, you know, the, the take-home data was 40% comes from feces, 20% comes from water, there's 10% from urine, and the rest of it comes from skin microbiome. Imagine if you could do this in a building. If you can take a sample on the floor and you can say, well, the microorganisms in this building, the fungi and the bacteria, come from these locations. And, you, you know, you might be a big bar there that says they come from water-damaged building materials, or they don't. Oh. I think if we have enough data um, and the techniques we have, and we can put this into a framework um, for analyzing it, I think we're going to get there with this type of analysis. Do you think there's times when we overdo the remediation? I don't know. Um I, you know, I, I so I don't have enough uh, I don't have enough experience in in that practice whether to say that you do or not. I, I imagine well, here's what I do know about it, and and you can you can correct me if I'm not. But I've talked to a lot of consultants who do a remediation, and they say that 
you know, this idea of restoring a home to the normal microbial ecology, it sounds like a good idea, and I think it is a good idea, but there are no ways to determine what a normal microbial ecology is. Exactly. And so you, you, you probably potentially way overdo it. Uh, if we had a finely tuned tool that, you know, a, a consultant could take a sample, get the data, and, you know, in, within three, you know, clicks of a mouse, you take that data and you drag it into software package that gives you all of this stuff analyzed for what a, a consultant would want to know. Um, and you can say, well, we did remediation and it looks like normal microbial ecology for this type of home in this area. I think that would be very, very beneficial, and it would really help to fine-tune what needs to be done for remediation and what doesn't. I think fine-tuning is is important because we, you know, there are people out there now that are, you know, micro-cleaning indoor environments that, and it costs a lot of money to micro-clean an entire indoor environment, or, and that's why, you know, I don't. I don't mean to imply for listeners out there that I don't think we should clean up after water damage. I do. I don't think there's any research that shows at this point, correct me if I'm wrong, that, you know, that's a bad thing. Um, You know, you've got unusual microbial growth in a home as a result of a water damage. It seems, seems pretty common sense that cleaning that up is a good idea. But um, I'm wondering if we overdo it at times. Yeah, well, you know, without a tool to really tell you if you've gotten back to normal, you know, everyone is susceptible to <laughs> to these uncertainties. And and the other thing is, obviously, there are, uh, you know, the health effects vary with, with different people. And uh, some of these health effects are true, some of them are not true. I just tend to think when a person is having a complaint that, you know, we should take them seriously. But, you know, I've had many people ask me, can you take a sample so-and-so is, is not feeling well, and they think it's the building, why don't you come in and take a sample with that help? And I say, you know, no, not necessarily, unless we know what microorganism is making them sick, and it's different for different people. What we can do, and, you know, the level that we should be expected to, to know is, you know, this building does not look any different than this building, this building, and this building where there are no complaints. Or this school classroom looks different than all the other school classrooms where are no complaints. Um, and so maybe there is a problem in this classroom and we need to find a way to get it to look at all the other classrooms. We can do those inner classrooms or inner building comparisons very quantitatively right now. And we can, we can sort of say, well, there's nothing that stands out, you know, from other buildings where there are no complaints. And that at least gets us part of the way there. Hmm. Cliff, before we sign off, do you have any final questions? I do. I just have one one final one. But what about, um, you know, some people take probiotics and, you know, it's thought that there are benefits of that. What about as part of remediation at the end of it, you know, trying to reseed, you know, the indoor environment with lactobacillus or, yeah. uh, you know, something that is presumed to be beneficial? Any comments on that? Yeah. I, 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 you know, I agree with that. I, I don't think that that's maybe such a bad idea. I think we could probably do better than just spraying it around a room. Uh, maybe putting in a pill and having a person take the pill might be the solution. Um, what I would rather see happen, though, is that, uh, you know, if we know the microorganisms that are important for human wellness, I would rather see us design buildings 
that encourage the colonization of those microorganisms. So I would rather, you know, have some guidelines for ventilation or for building materials or building occupancy and maintenance that we know help to contribute to those types of organisms. It seems, you know, Cliff, you bring up a good point because we actually clean, in, in my opinion, we clean oftentimes beyond what's normal. And, you know, I don't know if that's always a good thing or a necessary thing because we have to weigh the costs as well. That's right. Okay. Well, before we go, Dr. Pesha, we always like to give you the last word. Is there anything we missed? that you'd like to add, anything you'd like to make sure our listeners know from your work, and I, I sure hope we can get you back again. Um, you know, I, I think we covered an awful lot, so I won't add anything more than, uh, you know, the importance of getting a dog. I'm a big dog fan, and so <laughs> <laughs> I have to say I'm a little bit unbiased, biased, but uh, the more research I read about dogs, wow, they have a tremendous effect on, on usually the good microbial ecology, unless, of course, you're allergic to dogs. Don't get a dog then. That can be a problem. And they eat some nasty. I, I, my dogs eat anything. That's amazing. But yeah, I, I that guess they're going to breathe it sooner or later the way the way it looks <laughs> with the research you're doing here. I don't know. But well, anyway. there seems to be an important part of our evolution of dealing, of living with animals. And we're certainly away from that. And maybe the best we can do is to have a pet. Yeah, because most people aren't going to have a cow. Uh, so That's right. The next best thing yeah. might be a dog, huh? <laughs> Yeah. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate having you on, and I, I sure hope we can meet in person sometime. I'd, I'd love to get together and talk a little more on these subjects. i like to. It's been a pleasure, Joe and Cliff. All Thank right. You. Well, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Dr. Jordan Peccia, the, the lab in uh, Yale University. Great stuff. Uh, of course, to my co-host, the Z-Man, uh, another great show, Cliff. Yeah, it was fun today, Joe. Long blog. Uh-oh. Cliff will be writing a blog, and we'll send it out to uh, get it reviewed and approved before we post it. We'll post it before our next show. Next week, the Z-Man and I are both traveling. I think what we're going to do is a flashback Friday. I want to get maybe uh, Brett Stevens' show back on or another one of these guys, the younger guys working on this microbiome stuff. We'll replay one of those shows next week. Uh, the one Brandon Bohr did, too, that was a little different um, wasn't really microbiome stuff, but we'll maybe I even could combine two of them, John. But we'll have something up for listeners next week, and then we'll come back uh, just before Christmas for our final show of the year. So, uh, also, of course, thanks to our loyal listeners out there. Please come back um, next week for a flashback, and two weeks from now from our final show of the year for IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 